0: Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever.
1: All right. Thanks, Kimberly, and thanks, Daniel. Um, well, so uh, as you guys might have noticed, we've kind of uh, shifted into the the Christmas season. Last week was the Christmas Cantata, which was great. Uh, these next two weeks, we will kind of kind of shift into more of a, I guess Christmas theme, Incarnation uh, type of theme, uh, and then the the twenty sixth, we're going to uh, kind of wrap up Ecclesiastes, and then we'll kind of move into to next semester. Um, but here we are; we are in Christmas season, and uh, one thing that our family enjoys during uh, Christmas time is we like to all gather in the den together uh, and make fun of Christmas Hallmark movies. Um, it's they are uh, they're all kind of the same. Uh, one night we even played a little uh, Hallmark movie bingo night, so we kind of matched up. You know, kind of kind of these predictable themes came up. And, and what's so funny? What we what we what we love and what we hate and what we love to hate. Is the predictable themes like we could all like if we all like took a minute to write down like a, a Christmas Hallmark movie show we'd all pretty much write the same script you know they're all kind of similar um, and so even I wrote down so I was saying I was thinking about this uh, I, I googled Hallmark uh, Christmas movies and I just copied and pasted a, a few themes and I'm gonna read these themes and see if you can guess how they might end so so here's one this is a Merry Christmas match here goes. Corey, who works in her mom's antique shop, put on a Christmas pageant in honor of her late father. When a man named Ryder visits her store, she wonders if she should have left her, ta- her town to follow her dream of becoming a theater director. I wonder if Corey and Ryder could have worked out there. Oh, no. <laughs> Here's another one. This is A Christmas Detour. Two travelers become linked when a snowstorm grounds their flight in Buffalo. Paige desperately needs to find a way to New York City to meet her fiancé's parents, and it's up to Dylan, a fellow passenger, and a guy she can't stand to get her there. I don't know much, but there's no way Paige and Dylan are up together, right? They're just too far apart. All right, and this is the last one, I promise. Uh, This is uh, Let It Snow. An executive examines her company's new property and prepares a presentation to transform the rustic lodge into a new hot spot. She tries to ignore the Lodges' festive celebrations during her stay, but an unexpected romance changes her heart. I wonder what's going to happen there, right? So here's how They always start off with, with people who don't like each other, and they're this unlikely match. You know, like, like I said, we like to get together and watch it and make fun of it. And usually somewhere in the first 10 minutes, a guy and a girl meet, and, man, they are just opposites and don't like each other. And somebody in our family will say, no way those two end up together, because it's going to happen. And so whatever seems unlikely, is, is, is that couple's going to work out. And so the unlikeliness is what makes these things predictable. Once they try to show, hey, these two people are opposites, you know where the whole story's going. And, and so here's what you see in, in these Hallmark movies that I think comes up in the Scriptures, too there's an unlikeliness that becomes predictable, right? When these two people who are real different, you wouldn't expect them to get together and because they're so unlikely, then the odds are that that's probably going to be two people that, that get together. And so there's an unlikeliness that becomes almost predictable. And, and we see a similar theme throughout the scriptures. For example, you have Abraham. He, he's an older man. He and his wife have not had children. And in uh, any way, that's the guy that God chooses to be the father of his new nation. It's an unlikely candidate, which to us would make him think he's probably likely for God to use in this way. Uh, then later, there's uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn. Uh, he's the hunter. He's really tight with his dad. And then there's Jacob. He's really tight with his mom and likes to cook. And he's, he's the secondborn. And guess who God chooses? Not the firstborn who's m- most like his dad and likes to hunt. He chooses the secondborn, Jacob who's tight with his mom, the the one you you wouldn't expect to have the inheritance. Uh, Then he chooses Leah instead of Rachel to be in the lineage of Jesus. Rachel was was the the beautiful one who Jacob favored, uh, but Leah was the unlikely one that God chose for the lineage uh, of Jesus. Then, of course, there's the story of Joseph. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. No way that guy will amount to anything, right? Well, he becomes the second in command of Egypt and ends up saving his family. Then David, King David, chosen to be king. Uh, you should know, and you already know, he wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't the secondborn, thirdborn. He was the eighthborn son. So, so there's nothing in him that would point you to him being the one that would be chosen. But he is the one who's chosen. Uh, and then Jesus choosing the people, uh, choosing his d- disciples. He chose fishermen, a shady ca- a tax collector, and, and, and a zealot. And a zealot, think of somebody who's like maybe a really super political person who's real active on social media about whatever their politics are. So he picks this kind of a eclectic group of people to be his disciples and later to be his apostles that are going to carry the message. And so God seems to consistently work in predictably unlikely ways and with unlikely people. And so today as we look at Isaiah 9, I'd like, I'd like for us to consider how this passage relates to the predictably unlikely way that our God tends to work and the way that our God comes to us. And, and this is what Christmas is all about. It's about our God coming to us. And so in our text today, we see Isaiah pointing us to, to Christmas, to the incarnation. And as we consider what Isaiah wrote, uh, I'd like for us to focus on three things as we look at Isaiah 9. Uh, we'll look at the, the land, the light, and the Lord. That's alliteration. I don't do that much. So, you know, we're in a special season. So uh, so, so first, uh, the land. Uh, look at chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So, so what is this land we're talking about here? This is the, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali in northern Israel, and that's where Galilee is. Galilee's in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it's not an impressive town. It's a border t- town. So when Israel was uh, originally, when they were exiled, uh, this region was one of the first to be invaded by Assyria and to be exiled out. Uh, and so now there's a lot of a lot of foreigners who have moved in there, so it feels less less Jewish than maybe Jerusalem with with the temple, and that's why it's called in that in that verse, Galilee of the nations. It's a real uh, diverse town. It's not a, it doesn't have a very Jewish feel to it like maybe Jerusalem, and and as Isaiah writes, they are under God's judgment. In the last verse of chapter eight. So if you go one verse back um, in chapter eight, verse 22, we read this. And they will look on the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So it isn't just that it's insignificant and, and nobody really cares about it. It's actually it's under God's judgment. And in the language describes they've been thrust into thick darkness. Now, another town in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali is Nazareth. And you probably remember what Nathaniel, the disciple, said about uh, Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was just this notoriously um, um, insignificant place or town. And it, it was telling you, hey, so, so I got special insight into next year. So next year, the best uh, football player in the SEC and the number one pick in the NFL draft of next year is coming out of Vanderbilt. And you'd be like, Nobody gets good comes out of Vanderbilt, right? Like that's, that's, we're thinking of Alabama, Ole Miss, you know, one of the, one of the big dogs, right? <laughs> um, sorry, I, that, that was not in my notes. So just so you know, that just came out of the heart. Um, but uh, but but look, but God ordained for Jesus to come out of this insignificant area. It pleased our God. For Jesus to come out of a place like Nazareth or Galilee, some place that was marginalized and uniquely insignificant, and y'all know what that's good news for us? It's good news because we all very much value being impressive. I would like for all of you to be impressed with me always. And, and look, for, for a lot of us, like whether we're happy or sad, sometimes relates to how impressed we we, we feel like. We feel like people are impressed with us or aren't impressed with us. Uh, And we all might locate this value of being impressive in in different places, right? Like it could be in in our looks, our our bodies, our clothes. Uh, It might be our work, whether it's status or pay or whatever it is. Uh, It might be more relational, whether you feel close or included or whatever. But we're all haunted with this desire to be impressive. And what our God has communicated— through the scriptures, over and over, is that He does not see as we see. This value of being impressive and managing people's thoughts of us to be somebody special, important—that is not how our God sees the world. He is not impressed with what is usually impressive to us, and the desire to impress others is, no, is not an obligation that we have in His Word. We are free from that burden. If we, if, we, if we can gain our sanity for a moment, we are free from the burden of trying to impress people. There is nothing in Scripture that encourages us, that encourages us in any way to try to impress other people. If anything, it's highly discouraged and, and viewed as dangerous like a trap. So we should embrace the things that make us feel insignificant. We should embrace whatever might humble us, whether it's our looks, our jobs, or our relationships, because God gives grace to the humble, and he is opposed to the proud. And God chose this humble, forgotten region to be the place where Jesus would grow up. He chose this unimpressive town to be the place where the light of the world would begin to dawn in the world. Now let's talk about the light for a second. Look at uh, chapter nine, verse two through five. Uh, verse two, nine, verse two: The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has, has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation; you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. As on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness had a light shine on them, and that light shining on them was good news. Notice the effect that the light shining had on them. In verse 3, The nation is multiplied. There's an increase in joy. They are successful militarily. They're dividing the spoil. Verse four, they're freed from their oppressor. Verse five, they have burned all their military attire. And so when light shows up in the scriptures, it's good news. Something good is happening. It's like in a Hallmark movie when an interior designer from New York meets the lumberjack from the small town. Something's about to happen here, right? Light has that recreating effect, and if you study Scripture, if you read Scripture, you see whenever light comes on the scene, good things are about to happen. And, and, you know, uh, light is is the opening event uh, in the creation account in Genesis. It was the, The first thing that happened was, let there be light. And it's interesting, when God said, let there be light, that's not when he created the sun. He created the sun on day four. So on day one, when he said, let there be light, he was talking about something else other than the sun. When God created light, it was a catalyst for creating the world. God created the light so that there could be life. And we're more dependent on that light for life than we are the sun. And according to some, we're pretty dependent on the sun, right? Like we don't don't live without it. But there's something even more important than that, and that's the light that created the sun eventually. So before there was the sun, there was light. And after the sun, so there was a time before the sun. God said, let there be light. That was three days before the sun. And then what we see in the scriptures is that after the sun, when the sun is no more, there will be light. In in Revelation 22, after the consummation of all things, where God has brought everything together, the fulfillment of his plan is complete. And in Revelation 22, verse 5, we read this. And night will be no more and they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so there's no need for the sun because the Lord is the light. So in Genesis, we see that there was light before the sun. In Revelation, we see that there's light after the sun. And that is so because Jesus is the light of the world and is more of a source of light and life than the sun itself. So whatever we understand of the sun as far as giving light and giving life, Jesus Christ is more than that. We might easily think that life is impossible without the sun, but what is more true is that life is impossible without the light of the world. Jesus sustains all things. The sun sustains life on earth, but Jesus is is the sustainer of even the sun. Jesus is the light that gives the sun life. And that baby in the manger is the sustainer of the Son in all things that have ever been. And in the same way that light came to shine and create life in Genesis 1, for any who have ever trusted in Jesus Christ and who have been converted, that light came to shine in your hearts to bring you to Jesus, to stir your affections for Christ and to believe the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We would never love Jesus. You don't love Jesus unless God has made the light shine in your hearts. And that is an act of God in the same way that creation is an act of God. So is your conversion an act of God. God said, let there be light. And there was light and there was affection stirred in your heart towards God. And you believed the gospel and you were drawn to Jesus. And it's the light that brought that life that had that recreating in power in you. And that's why you can't brag about others who maybe haven't come to faith or don't believe the gospel and think for some reason you're better than them because the only reason you have any affection for Christ is because God said, let there be light. And he was recreating you. We would not be Christians without that recreating work of light being shined into our heart. And this is true for anyone who's ever been a Christian. And when God said, let there be light in your heart, what happened was this. If you converted, what happened was this, is that the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ was revealed to you and it was sweet. It brought life. You weren't thinking, man, I need to start going to church more or I need to read my Bible more. You were seeing the Son of God in his glory on full display and found it irresistible. And amazingly, this light entered the world as a person humbly in an unlikely place in a land of contempt and judgment, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a place of gloom and darkness. It's an unlikely place. But look, if you know the scriptures, when you start to hear about an unlikely place, you're thinking something's about to happen here. God's probably about to do something He is predictable in that he works in these unlikely places. And out of this region, a light would shine. And that light was the beginning of a new world, a new kingdom coming to this world, a new world of light inside an old world of darkness. And that light began to dawn in an insignificant spot, and even a spot that that was almost known as dirty. These are the people up north that turned away from God real quick, they, they turned away and they left the faith. And God chose that place to be the place where the light of the world would come and be, and, and be uh, raised. The church, the kingdom of God, is a world inside a world. And one day, it won't just simply be a world inside a world. It will be all over the world. And this light began to dawn in a small, forgotten, formerly exiled town. And it pleased God to do significant work in a very insignificant place because God does not value being impressive the way we value being impressive. He he doesn't bend towards status like we might. If we're going to have a big uh, party, we we might value place and status and things like that. That is not how our, our God operates. Now, let's spend some time on this light. Who is a person? The Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, look at uh, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteous, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This this new world of light is going to be ushered in by a child to be born, born to be king. And this king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the peace and increase of his government will know no end. This kingdom is coming It's going to expand. And you know what's going to make this happen? I'll tell you what's not going to make this happen. The church doing uh, church and theology right. That's not what's going to make it happen. The church being really committed to evangelism and missions. That's not what's going to make it happen. The church being committed to personal holiness, turning away from sin, being committed to holiness. The church doing a lot of good in in the community they're in, loving one another well. That's not what's going to make this kingdom expand. The reason that this glorious kingdom will enter into this world and its peace and increase will know no end is because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. It's like he told Peter, I will build my church. It is an act of God that we are getting swept up into now, we might be involved in evangelism and missions and personal holiness and, and, and doing theology well and church well and all. We might be involved with in that. But all of that is a byproduct of the zeal of the Lord increasing his kingdom. And its peace and rule will know no end. And that's good news for us because if it was up to us, we'd mess it up a hundred different ways. But our hope was born into the world to insignificant parents in an insignificant town to save unimpressive people, and to create a new world. Our God approached unimpressive people in predictably unlikely ways. Our being a mess shouldn't make us feel hopeless, but hopeful because our God gives grace to sinners and people who are struggling. And this is how our God approaches us. And even to say that, there's a lot in that. Because what we miss in just saying that is the wonder that our God would approach us. There's almost a sense where we need to take a minute and think, how how might we approach God? And that's something that should knock us to our knees. But what we're talking about is our God approaching us. We shouldn't be able to approach God. And even in that, he's the one that approaches us. The one who created and sustains the son came to see us. And he does so in an astonishingly humble way. Y'all, that is what our God is like. He's like that. We, we don't need to come up with a strategic plan. Man, let's make sure we get our theology tight. Have, I hope we're not doing church right. I hope we're not doing anything wrong here. I hope I'm having my quiet times. You know, I had some bad thoughts the other day. Like, like we don't have to clean up our act because our God comes to us. He knows we can't clean up ourselves. And so he comes To us that is our God and that is really good news and the idea that we're not impressive to others the idea that we're not impressive to God irrelevant (laughs) that's really good news if you're haunted by the idea of not being impressive like I am often that's really good news you don't have the burden to impress God to be good enough he came to you he came to us and did all that was necessary, he was good enough. We don't have to be good enough. We don't need to build a resume to approach God. We don't need to have our theology just right. Hey, we all have some kind of weird part of our theology that's probably off. I'm all for having good theology. But even the stuff we we think we grasp, we probably on a practical sense don't. We don't need to have a lot of ministry activity or service to make God okay with us. Because our God approached us. And so we can come to our God, who already approached us because of what was fulfilled in his son and taking all of our punishment and fulfilling all righteousness for us, we can come to him unimpressive. Utterly unimpressive. And actually, the only thing that would hurt your resume is to think you have a resume. But we can come to him simply, empty-handed, unimpressive, sinners in need of grace, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the wonder of it all, that our God would come to us and fulfill all righteousness and take all punishment that we deserve and give us access by trusting in you, turning to you, And so I pray that as we approach this Christmas season, that we wouldn't lose the wonder that our God came to us in such a humble way, an infant who was born to be king, grew up to die and to be resurrected and to live forever, to usher in a kingdom that will know no end. So would you give us new hope and wonder at the gospel? And would you in that stir our affections for Jesus Christ that we would know true joy of the fact that our God has approached us. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.